minute it doesn't take a genius to see that the wasteland has problems but it does take a room full of morons to watch mad max beyond thunderdome one minute at a time i'm rick and i'm julia and today we're talking about minute 84 which begins with the generator train rumbling along its tracks and it ends with skyfish and anna discovering master's record player wrapping up the week with us are two costumed adventurers known as travis bow and eric nash from the watchman minute hey guys Quite an intro. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome back. Good to see you wrapping up the week with us. Thank you for joining us all this time. Rick, I'm curious. Are we the room full of morons or are the kids the room full of morons? Travis, Eric, do you want to let our listeners know where that <laughs> intro came from? Definitely. That's the uh, comedian talking to the other crime busters or watchmen in uh, their first meeting. It does not go very well. Ah, I see. And if I remember right, the comedian was referring to themselves as the morons? Uh, yeah, I think lumping himself in with the other morons that decide to dress up and go out into the night stopping bad guys. If I remember right, that's the scene where he lights a map of America on fire. Isn't that right? Oh, yeah. <gasps> Sacrilege. Subtlety. <laughs> yeah. If there's one thing <laughs> that Zack Snyder is known for, it's subtlety. Yeah. <laughs> Although that was pulled originally from the book Watchmen. Yes. So there's that. Speaking of pulling shots and things from other movies, as I mentioned at the tail end of Wednesday's Minute, we begin this episode with the fleet of Auntie's vehicles driving into the bush. And it's only the first five seconds, but it reminds me very much of some of the far shots that we got back in Road Warrior of Humongous and his horde driving towards and away from the compound and then towards the end as they were driving along each side of the rig. These faraway shots of vehicles kicking up dust over the outback. Now, Road Warrior in this movie have the same cinematographer, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a little bit surprised in the slight difference between the two shots. Back in Road Warrior, these long shots where we see the vehicles driving away, the dust and dirt was very linear. It was very clear lines where these cars had been and what direction they were going in. In Thunderdome, the wind, which of course is unpredictable and you can't make it do exactly what you want it to do, is blowing these trails around a little bit. They're just not as clean. They're a little bit messy from the wind. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that you can't really control the wind though. Yeah. The intent was there. It was, I guess. I, <laughs> I am a little bit disappointed that I really loved those shots from Road Warrior. And I loved that we got them a couple times throughout the movie and that they were just so clean and so beautiful. And when we get the same type of shot here, it just isn't the same. You could also argue that it's not as clean because Auntie isn't a Road Warrior herself. She is a politician. She's not a warrior of the wasteland like Humongous was. That's very true. Humongous and his gang, that's what they did. They were drivers. And that was the basis of 
how they functioned and their existence. And they used those driving skills to survive. Auntie is not. She uses her way with words to survive. Mm-hmm. I like to think that she she's fought her way up physically and politically, but there's no evidence to suggest. You know. Well, we'd certainly enjoy it if there were physical evidence. Yeah. We'd like to talk about prequel movies and whatnot, and if they wanted to make an anthology Mad Max movie, they could very much make one out of Auntie's story. We've said it once, we'll continue saying it again. Oh yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> rise of auntie that would be amazing i would love to see her in a road warrior-esque role perhaps moving up through the ranks using her way with words and her political power to gain advantage maybe once we're done with the podcast i'll sit down and try my hand at screenwriting and do a terrible job writing something What you might have an easier time doing because you've done it in the past is doing more of a graphic novel style writing of it rather than a screenplay writing of it. That's good. So I feel that what we're looking at right now is essentially what audiences in 1985 were looking to see when they sat down for Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. They were expecting these high speed chases that they got from Road Warrior. And I feel like a lot of the disappointment with the third movie in the series is because it takes nearly 90 minutes to get to the point where you've got vehicles chasing after each other. And I say nearly 90 minutes because the chase doesn't technically start until minute 86. We get a little taste of it here, but then we cut away to it to deal with other things until we come back next Wednesday, Mm. I think it is, if I'm counting right. (laughs) But it makes sense, and you guys probably talked about it in like the opening scene of the movie where we see Max is driving a team of is it camels that are pulling his vehicle? Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's probably not a lot of gasoline to go around these days. So there aren't a lot of high speed car chases. And we do see these cars here give chase, but we wouldn't have seen them until this point. There were interviews given by Terry Hayes and George Miller around the time that Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome came out, where they explained that by this point, the gasoline has gone. Yeah. Like, there's no more. They got around the gasoline problem in Road Warrior by having it set only a few years after everything hits the fan. But Beyond Thunderdome is more than a decade after society collapsed, and so they wouldn't be finding vehicles with tanks full of gas because everything would have been scavenged by then. Yeah. But they didn't do a good job of conveying that specific detail in the text of the movie. That was something that was included in the novelization of the screenplay, but you're right, it did not translate to the screen. I suppose probably because... Perhaps it didn't need to be explained. If they can communicate that it has been quite some time, which they sort of do by Max's hair and his condition, that we, the people, are smart enough to realize that gasoline is a highly processed product. Those processes are gone and lost, that of course there would be no more fuel. And if even Max isn't using fuel, and he is very skilled at collecting it and preserving it, if even he is out, then it must be gone. Yeah, that's a good argument for it. Perhaps it could have been presented to us a little bit stronger, but... Well, they also show us that these people live off of methane, and clearly like they've had to resort to the pigs and the 
collecting of methane because there's no other fuel option. Speaking of things running off of methane, we cut away from all of these vehicles over to the generator train as it's rolling along the tracks. And we get initially a nice outside shot of the train. We can see Max and Savannah climbing along the side and they make their way to the window where Pig Killer is sitting. And he's just having a wonderful time. There's a rule of thumb that we learned back <laughs> in Road Warrior where if you can't see the ground, then the vehicles aren't moving. And that is clearly the situation we're dealing with here because to watch Pig Killer, Tubba, and Kusha bouncing around in the front of that truck, you get the sense that they were told, pretend that the thing is moving, and they didn't really understand just how much it rattles, and so they're just bouncing up and down all the live long day, way more than Max and Savannah are doing. That's funny, I didn't even notice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny, though. I want to rewatch this just to look out for that. That's awesome. I want to, if you don't mind, go back real quick just to the opening shot that they show after they transition from the cars chasing, then it, I don't know if it does a wipe or if it's just a straight up cut, but we follow, we pull up behind the train, almost like we're on the same tracks, mm -hmm. but then it's the camera starts to like pull up alongside them just for a second. Yeah. And it, I'm not sure how they got this shot if they were driving a big truck you know, on the ground and somehow managed to get a real steady cam or if they were, I can't imagine flying low enough with a helicopter because they get right up on, unless they're zoomed in. But I was really just blown away by the getting the shot of coming up behind the train and just really curious how they, how they did that. Yeah, it's really dynamic and really cool. It is. George Miller is known for his interesting camera techniques. Yeah, I'm just... Super curious how, what they even, what method they used to get the shot. It's probably a crane shot. We did not have the luxury of a cast and crew commentary for Beyond Thunderdome because they just never recorded one that they included on the Blu-rays. Sure. And it's a real bummer. It's a real bummer that we never got to hear any of that. Yeah, in the past, we've gotten lots of information about, oh, this interesting shot. Well, this is how we did it. And this is how it was very, very dangerous. <laughs> and <laughs> this is how cold it was. And we really didn't get that much for Thunderdome. This shot reminded me of the very opening shot of the movie mm. where we are POV from Jedediah in the plane swooping down over over Max and his caravan reminded me of that shot very much. Yeah, I always found that this one takes us into the third act, but it may not be exactly here, but it kind of seems like once uh, once they leave Bartertown and it seems to be done for, it seems like this is the start of the third act. Yeah. Well, that's something that you do with the Real Comic Heroes podcast is that you break down, when you go through a movie, you say, okay, First act, second act, third act. Right. I definitely feel with Beyond Thunderdome that you have an act break when Max is wandering in the desert. That's the transition from act one to act two. And I feel like act three properly begins when Max and Savannah enter Underworld. When they go into that pipe yeah. and start crawling through. But I definitely see where you're coming from. The idea that Act 3 doesn't properly start until this point where they're once again leaving Bartertown. And, and some movies have like several act breaks or it, it can be hard to tell exactly when, but yeah. yeah. Going back to Max at Pig Killer's window, they're riding along and Pig Killer's all grins. And so Max says, what's the plan? And Pig Killer gets this look on his face. 
face as if he has been sitting in a lecture and wasn't paying attention and has suddenly been called on for an answer. I also think it's a little bit of a look like, are you serious? Do you think there's a plan? Didn't you just hear me cackling? Like, <laughs> you're, you're here with me too. Like, Does this look like the face of someone who plans? You don't know me very well, do you? <laughs> so Pig Killer just says straight up plan? There ain't no plan. And then of course Max has his own reaction. It's very quick before we cut away to the truck's wheels spinning, but Max just looks like he's wondering what he's gotten himself into. In the screenplay, there's a little bit more back and forth about this question. Max replies, well, where are we going? Pig Killer's response was the end of the track. <laughs> Max asks, well, where's that? And Pig Killer laughs and said, who knows? <laughs> So it definitely illustrates a little bit more that Pig Killer not only doesn't have a plan, but also doesn't really care that they don't have a plan. He just wants to put as much distance between him and Barter Town as possible, I think. Exactly. They describe his smile as living for the moment. <laughs> so he has no plans for the future. I think I mentioned earlier this week that perhaps Pig Killer doesn't really expect to survive all of this. That, yeah, he's just putting as much distance between them and him as possible, and he's gonna die a free man. That's really all that matters to him at the moment. And he's not wrong. They are going to go about as far as those tracks can carry them. It's not a complete plan, but it's what they have in front of them. <laughs> and to Pig Killer's credit, Master, who is the smart one in the group, and Max credits Master, actually, with getting them out of Barter Town alive. Master is packing up his things because he knows that that's the plan. He's already preparing to jump ship because mm -hmm. he knows that these train tracks can't take them all that far. So while Pig Killer doesn't have a plan, that his plan is to just ride the rails until he can't anymore, and that's a non-plan, to master that is the plan, and it's an actual plan. So it's not really all about point of view and looking as many steps ahead as you can. Reminds me of Heath Ledger's Joker talking about how, you know, he's not a planner. He's he's like a dog chasing a car. Like he's he doesn't know what he's going to do with it if he ever catches up to it. Uh-huh. He just has this impulse to chase it. Yeah. <laughs> so we get a lovely shot of the train's wheels conveying it along at high speed. And once again, I am just confounded at how these tracks are able to be intact for so long. And it's got to be. We've talked about this in the past. It's got to be that Bartertown is protecting this railway. That they're using it in some way or patrolling it or keeping an eye on it. Because it just seems like such a ripe source of iron. Huh. Well, only... Only Master would really know what to do with iron. He seems to be the only one with any technological abilities whatsoever. Well, in Barter Town. In Barter Town. But you remember all of the guys in Humongous's Horde, there were mechanics and there were barbers and there were people with very many different sets of skills. Right. If a horde of road warriors came across these train tracks, they would probably look at these iron tracks and be like, ooh, raw resources. Let's get them. Let's take them. Let's pull them apart. And if Auntie wasn't there, probably sending guards out on some sort of 
hand-powered cart thing that we're actually going to see <laughs> pop up later. But if she wasn't sending them out to keep an eye on things, they might not actually be intact. And I find it amazing that they are. I can definitely get on board with the idea that not only can you be punished by working in Underworld, you could also be put to manual labor elsewhere. One of those places being maintaining train tracks. Yeah, we talked about the wheel and how hard labor can mean any nebulous amount of things. All sorts of things need to be done mm -hmm. to maintain a society. Yeah. And if the society isn't willing to pay for the less than desirable jobs, they go to convicts and people who are desperate and outright slaves. Mm -hmm. Those tracks would be good barriers for other, like like we saw in Road Warrior with the, uh, I always thought of it like an atoll, but uh, people with the fuel. The compound, yeah. The compound, yeah, like just as they are without even being converted into something else, but they would make good barriers. Yeah. If you had the means to get them from point A to point B. <laughs> the best way to get them from point A to point B would be via railroad. Yeah. <laughs> Ironically. Yeah. <laughs> well, start out one end and then just get going to the other end and make that your base. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Get all that you, yeah, you only need so many rail tracks. You just put them down in front of you and as you go over them, you pick them up at the end and <laughs> yeah. shift them around to the front. Yeah. And <laughs> build it that way i think that's a looney tunes cartoon where they yep. do that <laughs> well speaking of looney tunes it's a, there's something you know like three stooges or something like that that i mean you mentioned earlier uh, julia the uh, mass master packing his bag because then the other the other two i forget their names <laughs> you know one of them is picking up the thing that he just put in the bag and you know handing it back to the other one to put in front of back in front of master <laughs> You know, it's just it's just a rotating thing. This bag never gets full. How frustrating because Master is there and I don't know where he's been hiding these little dapper suits. He would <laughs> yeah. probably keep trying to keep them away from the pigs to keep them from smelling bad because yeah. he's been going around this whole movie either dressed as a samurai or dressed in a dirty jumpsuit. But now he's got a waistcoat and a cravat and a bowler hat and a long sleeve shirt that's buttoned down. He has two bowler hats. Yeah. Eddie <laughs> is wearing one of his bowler hats. Yep. And so as Master puts things in the bag, Screwloose reaches around, pulls out what was just put in the bag, hands it off to Eddie, and then Eddie puts it back into the box that Master is emptying things from. I understand that this is a comedic moment that is very cute, but I don't really understand other than to be comedic why it was included. Screwloose and Eddie don't seem to be particularly curious about the objects. They're just moving them in a circle. <laughs> that seems to be the point of the whole thing. Well, if we've learned anything about the waiting ones, it's that they like copying people. And so they see that Master is taking this item from one place and putting it in another place. And so they want to play this game as well. And so they will pick up the item and move it from one place to another place. And more so than why they're moving that around, I have to wonder why why Master thinks that these things are important enough to take along with him because they look to be made of silver or at least mm -hmm. some sort of polished steel or something like that. They must be valuable in some way. Well, the screenplay gives us a bit more insight into that that really is not reflected in the movie. It tells us some of the things that he puts in his bag. One of them is quite moving. So let me find on the page where they are specifically mentioned. There are a few favorite books 
his drafting equipment, some pencils. The thing that's a bit moving, that's a bit touching, is that Master also packs a picture of Blaster. And Master also mentions that he is enjoying being in his room surrounded by children because they remind him of Blaster. So these two things together kind of tell us that they have a long and affectionate history. There was love between them for whatever reason, whether they were actually related or whether they've just known each other so long were such an integral part of each other's lives prior to the master blaster relationship that there is more history there than just this symbiotic relationship, which doesn't feel very healthy, wouldn't generate actual affectionate feelings. It's a shame that that was uh, either removed or that they went a different direction because I would have preferred seeing some of that conveyed rather than just the cycling of these trinkets in and out of his bag. I think it would have really spoken to why Master is an interesting character, as is he's kind of not, especially in this portion of the movie where all of a sudden he goes from being Master to being, what, Professor? Yeah. It's kind of all of a sudden and non-important. So connecting him back to Blaster in such a way would have been nice. I'll tell you about like the first time I ever watched this movie. I was just trying to watch all the Mad Max movies in preparation to watching Fury Road. And so this would have been sometime after... Fury Road was available on disc or or rent or whatever. And so I watched this one and at some point I fell asleep. I think around the time that Max met up with the kids and then I think I woke up around this time of the movie and suddenly they're on a train and Master is in a little suit (laughs) and it was just so bizarre and I had no idea what was going on. So I... I don't remember if I rewatched it the next day or, or watched what I missed, but it, it really just, it was so bizarre. So it's, it's crazy the places this movie goes without the context, obviously, of seeing how it gets there. But I just always think about that when I think of this movie is just that weird feeling of, wait, wait, what happened? Right. What did I miss? You know, why is jump. he in a suit? And <laughs> So the pencils that Master adds to his bag, Screwloose pulls one out, hands it to Eddie. Eddie sticks the pencil in his mouth and takes a bite out of it and starts to chew it. It's so odd. I'm glad they didn't add that in there. It makes Eddie look, I don't know. Like a child who always puts things in his mouth? Well, yes. Okay, fine. (laughs) And then next comes out a toothbrush, which Screwloose uses to brush his hair. (laughs) So now it's a hairbrush and no longer a toothbrush. But Master doesn't know that, which is unfortunate. And I think the last thing that they talk about going into and subsequently out of the bag is a pair of binoculars that, of course, Screwloose retrieves and looks through, puts him up to his eyes, but he looks through him backwards because, of course. Screwloose and Eddie aren't the only ones messing with things here in this little cabin caboose thing. Skyfish has found an alarm clock, a little analog style with the bells on the top and he picks it up and he's looking at it and somehow he sets off the ringer and so he drops the clock pulls out a hammer and just starts smashing it until it stops ringing and i just think that he would do very well in captain hook's clock museum from hook (laughs) yes he would he's already got the the hammering down pat seeing that took me straight there as well and then just just the kids in general it just feels like 
the kids from Hook. Mm-hmm. The scene we had earlier with Max and them interacting. And in here, they do a really good job of making the kids seem naive and believable in this world of growing up with no adults and the only the slightest grasp of their history. So I think the kids, for the most part, all act really well. Yeah. They do. Skyfish, he puts a really good face on when he's looking at the turntable that Anna points his attention to. It's curious and very unsure at the same time. It's a great little bit of acting from Mr. Skyfish. Yeah, you can see the way he's looking at it, that he's kind of has an idea of what what he should do with it. In the storybook, when they get to this point where the kids are watching Master moving around his cabin in a flurry, Anna looks over at the turntable at the gramophone, and it turns out that Master has his own vinyl record already on the machine. And so Anna gets Skyfish's attention and says, look, he's got his own Sonic. And so that's how Anna's able to realize, oh wait, this thing that we've been carrying around on this stick for however many years, it goes with this thing here. Because in the movie, it just has Skyfish smashing the clock and then Anna stopping him and saying, look, look at this. And they stare at the record player and then Anna just puts it together without any sort of implication of, oh hey, of course these things would go together. We, in modern society, would know that these two things go together. But they wouldn't necessarily know that. They just see that it's round. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they spin the Sonic around on the stick. So she's a bit more clever, I guess, in the movie than in the storybook. Yeah. I'm a little bit disappointed that in the storybook she had help. I was really proud of her that she saw these two objects and saw how they could work together and that they were supposed to go together. Anna Goanna, she's smart. She's a precocious little child. She is. (laughs) And you can tell that she is on the smarter side of the scale compared to a lot of the other waiting ones. She's skeptical. She thinks things through. She's also emotional and loyal. Those are the things that drive a lot of her actions. So I was really glad to see her intelligence show in this moment. So I'm glad that they changed it. Maybe they changed it because they wanted Anna Goanna to appear smarter, Mm. quicker, to make that connection herself instead of having blatant help. Having not seen Beyond Thunderdome for a little while, that's something in that little bit of what Max said in this minute. It just seems like his accent is much closer to American. I know he was born here and lived here for 12 years, but my recollection of Max is that he has a thicker, but not too thick, of an Australian accent. It just seems like, at least for this one little bit of dialogue, it's much more American sounding. It's very interesting that you pick that out because this movie, the entire movie, Max's Australian accent is fading. It is quite faint. Yeah. And we know that Mel Gibson can turn it off and turn it on. Yeah. And in interviews when it doesn't really matter what accent he has, his accent is American. I think that's something that has changed over time. I think back in the original Mad Max, he had gone to acting school in Australia. He had spent a lot of time in Australia. You could argue that he essentially grew up in Australia. Absolutely. His Australian accent is genuine. But as time has passed, 
And as he has done more and more movies, it has faded. Yeah. So in this movie, it's practically non-existent. And George Miller in this movie didn't really care so much about accents. Everybody in this movie just got to speak with their own voice. Yeah. Tina Turner's accent is thoroughly American. Frank Thring's accent is British. I think somewhere in the mix is a New Zealander, but I can't remember where. Everybody just did their own thing. So Max is pretty American. And they can be hard to tell a lot, especially with Mad Max and his character, because he doesn't talk a lot in any of the movies. In this movie, more than all of the others, but especially when his accent was thicker back in Mad Max in 79, he just didn't have a ton of dialogue. Yeah, if you are watching the Mad Max movies in an effort to foster your own Australian accent, I'm probably living (laughs) proof of it, but you're going to have a bad time. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of accents and languages and things like that we are going to put a pin in the movie here before anna and skyfish drop the record onto the gramophone and that transition is going to make a bit more sense come monday but in the meantime travis eric is there anywhere you would like our listeners to check out online for them to find more of you yeah certainly check out uh, real comic heroes podcast if you want to hear some movie reviews on uh, comic book movies and some other genres and find that easily by just searching real comic heroes pretty much everywhere real with two e's and then eric and i are on watchman minute together and we're breaking down the director's cut of Zack snyder's watchman and um as of this recording we're halfway through the movie but i, th- I guess by the time this comes out we might be more like uh, three quarters of the way through just depends so with a three-hour movie i can't imagine <laughs> <laughs> yeah and yeah you can find that uh, equally easily just search Watchmen Minute and you'll find us. Excellent. And as for us, if you are interested in hearing more of Julia and I, we have our Patreon show, which is in week 28. It is the final week of us covering Steven Spielberg's hook on our Patreon show, Anarchy Road. We get to say goodbye to Wendy and the Banning family. We watch Toodles fly away to Neverland and the end credits start. So that's cool. We get like half a minute of actual movie and then the rest is just talking about things. So we try to do interesting things during credits. So come on over to Patreon. At this point, give us three bucks. You can listen to the entire movie at this point. It's great. But if you don't play on Patreon, we will be back on Monday. Anna and Skyfish are going to start messing around with the record player until Max comes along and shows them how it works, at which time nous allons apprendre quelques phrases en français, ça va? The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute 84 of beyond thunderdome we'll see you next time Everybody!